Welcome to another episode of the Can I Tell You Something podcast. Today we have an episode where we're going to break down a video that's been circulating around the internet a lot over this past week and has some pretty big implications, but there is a lot of context that's needed to understand what's going on here. So what video are we talking about? Yes, this is the hearing clip of three college presidents, Harvard, MIT, UPenn, on battling anti-Semitic speech on their campuses. And boy, is this juicy. Yes. And it's, I don't know, like, just looking on the internet this past week, I have found it really difficult to find, like, the actual facts and the narrative. And I just, like, I'm seeing so much misinformation that the purpose of this episode is to basically say, how did we get here? And like, what does this mean? Exactly. So the first thing we're going to do is we are going to show some snippets of a PBS NewsHour segment that talked about the situation. This aired on December 11th. We're filming this on December 12th, but it does a really good job of summarizing everything up until this point. Yeah. And of course, we will be listening to the juicy clip that has been going viral that I'm sure all of us have heard at least a few lines from. And then we are going to introduce a new prop on the show. Yes. In which we will be going through the timeline or the cycle of events that describe how we got here. So let's get into that clip. At Harvard University, turmoil over the fate of the school's president, Claudine Gay. Gay, MIT President Sally Kornbluth, and now outgoing University of Pennsylvania President Liz McGill, came under fire last week for their testimony in a House hearing on rising anti-Semitism on their campuses. On Friday, Gay apologized for her remarks to the Harvard Crimson, saying, Calls for violence or genocide against the Jewish community or any religious or ethnic group are vile. They have no place at Harvard, and those who threaten our Jewish students will be held to account. The flashpoint of last Tuesday's hearing, a heated line of questioning from Republican Representative Elise Stefanik, who herself has been criticized for not calling out anti-Semitism in her own party. And Dr. Gay, at Harvard, does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment, yes or no? It can be, depending on the context. Stefanik was referring to slogans that have been chanted at pro-Palestinian rallies on campus such as from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. That phrase, adopted by Hamas, is seen by some as a call for the destruction of Israel and the killing of Jewish people. Others say it's a decades-old rallying call for a state where all Palestinians can live freely alongside Israelis. I will ask you one more time. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment, yes or no? Anti-Semitic rhetoric. And is it anti-Semitic rhetoric? Anti-Semitic rhetoric when it crosses into conduct that amounts to bullying, harassment, intimidation, that is actionable conduct and we do take action. So the answer is yes, that calling for the genocide of Jews violates Harvard Code of Conduct, correct? 
Again, it depends on the context. Even as pressure mounts for Gay's resignation, more than 600 faculty signed a letter saying Harvard should not cave to political pressure. Steven Pinker, a professor of psychology, didn't sign the letter, but said Gay's firing would not solve the problem. The reason that I don't think she should be called on to resign is that I think the problems run much deeper and they should be addressed directly rather than through a, uh, a sacrificial scapegoat. At University of Pennsylvania, the consequences were swift. On Saturday, University President Liz McGill announced her resignation after donors, politicians and some students called for her ouster. Before McGill's resignation, more than 70 members of Congress, all but three of whom were Republican, signed a letter demanding the three presidents step aside. Meanwhile, some progressive members, including the only Palestinian-American in Congress, Rashida Tlaib, say allegations of anti-Semitism are being weaponized to silence legitimate criticisms of Israel. You know, Americans have a right to speak up. Americans have a right to, to the institutions they work at or the people that represent them to say, look, this is my opinion. I believe you should support X, Y, and Z. House Republicans have opened an investigation into the three universities, and more than a dozen Democratic lawmakers asked schools to review and update their policies. So I hope that video helped clarify what we're talking about. And while that video was playing, we brought this behind us. This is the board that we're going to use to help contextualize what this clip is, why are the people in that room when they are, and everything that we think you should know about it before passing strong judgment, before posting on social media about your opinion about this clip, because the context makes it really nuanced and difficult to pick through. For those of you who are just listening and can't see our beautiful board, I want you to imagine, you know, those like very big sticky notes that you would have in like high school or college or whatever. And when the teacher would bring it out, it would be like, oh, no, group work's coming. Yes. Imagine that. And we have created sort of a mind map spider web diagram. So to kick things off. Yeah. So right at the center, we have December 5 hearing clip, which is what we're talking about. And the first bit of context that we need is the 2023 Israel-Hamas war. And so we're including this as the first piece of information because we don't know when someone might be listening to this podcast. And it's helpful to know just how soon after the start of this war these clips came. So the war has been going on now for just over two months. It started with an attack on October 7th of 2023. And now, the, I mean, the conflict is still ongoing and a lot of lives have been taken in the process. And because of the initial attack, there was a response by a lot of college campuses throughout the U.S., which are known for being hotbeds for political activism, for speaking on these sorts of global affairs and international issues. Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely no surprise that college kids or just kind of Gen Z in general have strong opinions about this. When I was touring colleges, I remember one of my tour guides who was much older than I was, was saw people protesting Israel and Palestine while we were going around campus. And they even said that, oh yeah, I remember when I went to school here, these protests were still going on. So this is 
multi-generational. This is not just a 2023 thing. This has been going on for decades, which is also why you see such a strong emotional reaction. It's not a heat of the moment thing. There's a lot of things that have been festering for a lot of people. This incident brings out a lot of what people are thinking. Yeah, I mean, totally, like you said, there's going to be an emotional response. However, I want to submit our second piece of evidence here. I have noticed, along with like kind of any other turmoil or war or just very like negative human right violation things happening in the greater world. Yes, college campuses are reacting, but also we have those social justice Instagram warrior cats that are really, really quick to post their little infographic. And as much as like posting something for the sake of getting the word out is great, there is also a very negative and harmful side to that. And I fear that we've kind of reached that negative side of activism within this war. I don't think that's what was happening specifically on these college campuses. But if we are going to talk about an emotional response and kind of how the United States in general has responded to this, I did want to point that out because I unfortunately, I think that has become a very popular way to say that you're an activist yeah is by like reposting little infographics you see on instagram and like that sounds great but if you take a step back and you say okay who made this where did this information come from how can i actually know that what i'm posting is real and that's what really scares me and i think that leads to this misinformation paranoia hotbed that has now led to this viral clip getting out of control. Exactly. I mean, you you laid the foundation perfectly for that. I was reviewing some of the the old papers that I read when I was studying undergrad, and I remembered one paper in particular that talked about the use of Twitter back in the early 2010s with similar movements. And they broke down, the, the paper is by Kate Starbird, who's a University of Washington professor. Um, She is a co-chair for the Center for an Informed Public at the University of Washington. Their whole mission is combating misinformation and disinformation, helping us understand what's going on in our world around us. So in the paper, they talk about two kinds of general tweets. You have your local utility tweets. So that is tweets and sort of social media posts that are really helpful for the people that are at the scene when things are happening. And then you also have your broad appeal tweets, which are the, the SOS, the big signal that gets a lot of people's eyes drawn to a particular situation. And what you're talking about is a lot of broad appeal information being generated, which makes it more difficult for that local utility to function within our social media landscape. So that's just another bit of this backdrop where we do need to be really careful about what information is being generated around this specific conflict, including the hearing clip, as you said. Yeah. And I want to make it super clear. I'm not saying don't go out and post on social media like I'm posting on social media too, not to an enormous degree, but I, I do think it's important to 
show your activism and display what you care about. But the moment it crosses a certain threshold, I just want you to ask yourself, how much am I actually helping and how much could I be potentially hurting this movement? Absolutely. So let's get to our next piece of context. Okay. So as we've hinted at, there are certain colleges that are involved in this hearing, one of them being the one and only Harvard. Harvard. Yes. And so there was a letter signed by a bunch of student organizations at Harvard that in essence blamed the Israeli government for the attacks on October 7th. The argument being that Israeli, the Israeli government's prior actions led to the attack out of desperation. When that letter was first published, there were Harvard alumni and CEOs that were asking for student names that signed the letter so that they could, could blacklist them from hiring. So that happened a couple days after the October 7th attacks. What struck me as really reactionary about it was that it was very likely that many of the students didn't get to see the final draft of the letter that they were signing. So to hold them accountable for the way that all that language is being written about this politically contentious issue and to blackball them from future hiring is a bit of a, a, a strong reaction. Yeah, without a doubt. I think there's so much to unpack from what actually happened with this letter. Like you said, it was signed and sent out just a few days after October 7th. And I don't know about all of you listening, but in Seattle, yes, there was a very quick and strong response and like protests for um, like pro-Palestine protests started relatively quickly. But I feel like there are other parts of the country that are kind of just now catching up to what is happening. And so I just thought that it was really interesting and also like quite profound that these students acted so quickly. And I just wanted to highlight that. I think that really shows how activism works on college campuses and how kids that are like just getting gaining their freedom and like just really learning about the world and its conflicts outside of what they knew in high school, of course, they're going to want to do something like it makes a lot of sense. And for, like you said, CEOs or whoever to then go and say, I want your name so that I never hire you. That's what's alarming. That's what terrifies me. Not that like these kids went and signed these letters. Like I know I was going to say apolitical, but like, really? You're going to, you're going to blacklist a student for being an activist? For like standing up for those who can't? That's really embarrassing for you. If anything, I want the names of those CEOs so that I know who to watch out for. Yes. Like it's so... It is so hypocritical. And the more that we get into this hearing clip, you'll see like truly how twisted this narrative is. And I think, again, it goes into how weird Harvard is. Yes, it goes into how weird Harvard is and specifically in terms of their cultural influence 
on United States higher education. When people think of a university in the U.S., I can almost guarantee that they're thinking of Harvard. Oh, yeah. It, it's kind of the first one. Yes. Right? There's a reason why Legally Blonde takes place at Harvard Law School. There's a reason why that movie 21 about counting cards in Vegas is to pay for Harvard Med School. There's a reason why that show Suits has someone fake a Harvard Law degree. Harvard is the flagship university of the United States. It's the second old. It has the biggest history here. And so a pro-Palestinian letter from Harvard students compared to the traditionally globally conservative alumni of Harvard University, that's a big source of tension. That is something that is unprecedented. That is something that is, is quite unique. And the desire to get explicit names out of it and to create a blacklist from students that signed this letter is, in my opinion, not only an evasion of privacy for the students that signed that letter, but it also really speaks to how quick people are to be absolutist about this particular issue. Right. And of course, we can sit here on our couch talking about this all day, but Brendan and I didn't go to Harvard, never went to Harvard, will never go to Harvard. And we weren't there when this letter was written. Yeah. So I'm sure if there are students out there who like actually experienced this, actually signed their name or chose not to sign their name, there might be a different narrative there. We're just going off of like the facts we could find. But this is more or less the event that sparked the hearing. Yes, because the hearing, when you look up online, is about rising anti-Semitism on college campuses, is quote-unquote the reason for this hearing. And the issue is that we were wondering is why these three presidents? Why were these three presidents, which will take us to our next bit of context, why were the presidents of Harvard, MIT, and UPenn selected to speak on behalf of all colleges and universities that were experiencing rising anti-Semitism on college campuses? Yeah, first of all, kind of a weird mix, right? Harvard, UPenn, MIT. When I first saw that, I was struggling to find what they had in common. If you're going to say the only thing they have in common is anti-Semitism, then pretty much any higher education institution would have to be on this hearing, right? Like you can't take such a broad and widespread issue and just apply it to three schools. It doesn't make any sense. Exactly. So that's where we were trying to dig into why Harvard specifically was selected, why MIT specifically was selected, why UPenn was specifically selected. And this is where we introduce we have the three colleges, and then we have the person asking the questions in the viral video, Elise Stefanik, the representative from New York. Now, Elise Stefanik in that video appears to be someone that is advocating for dismantling anti-Semitism on college campuses. Oh, yeah. The, the first time I watched it, it was actually, I saw it reposted on LinkedIn. I was like, okay, I'll watch it. And I was 
you know, I had no idea who she was. I thought, oh my God, she's really out here fighting the good fight. Like I was, I was truly fooled. Yes. Because of the way she presents herself and the emotions that are so clear in like her dictation. It's passionate. Yeah. yeah, It's, it draws you right in and it, it makes you want to say there is only one clear answer. However, we need to keep in mind that the reason why these three college presidents were speaking to Congress is they were called by specifically the Committee on Education and the Workforce. So this is not a committee dedicated to national security. This is not a committee dedicated to trade, to foreign related. It is a committee dedicated to education and the workforce. And the argument. Well, I think we need one of those. Yes. That makes sense that it exists. And the argument that inspires bringing these specific presidents in front of Congress is that college campuses have been policing free speech but are silent about anti-Semitism. That is overall the agenda behind this specific hearing. And just to prove this point, I highly recommend that anyone check out Elise Stefanik's Wikipedia page. Okay, so like Brendan suggested, I have now pulled up Elise Stefanik's Wikipedia, and I'm just going to read some of it so that we have a little background on this gal. Initially elected as a moderate conservative, Stefanik is considered to have moved towards the right as she aligned herself with then-President Donald Trump. She strongly opposed the first impeachment of Trump in 2019 amid the Trump-Ukraine scandal and backed Trump's attempts to overturn the 2020 presidential election. So right there, that, that kind of gives you some context. It, it gives she you, was also... Yeah you know, of course, involved on January 6th. I think what's also kind of interesting is she seemed almost kind of irrelevant before this. And the Wikipedia page says, Stefanik gained national attention in December of this year for her intense questioning of the presidents of three major universities, Harvard, UPenn, MIT, during a widely televised U.S. congressional hearing on anti-Semitism. Stefanik repeatedly asked them whether calling for the genocide of Jewish people constituted bullying or harassment at their universities. And the presidents were evasive in their responses, which drew widespread criticism and calls for their resignations. Okay. Beautiful. Because that highlights another important detail, which is when certain congressional hearings are nationally televised, the behavior of representatives change. Because there is a perfect opportunity for anyone in the House of Representatives, as we approach an election cycle, to be able to get a clip to win favor for their re-election. Get a little soundbite going. And so for Elise Stefanik, this worked perfectly. This was the, the grand opportunity to catch the hypocrisy of policing speech on college campuses. And to that effect, she... Knocked it out of the park. No one knew who she was until this happened. And now everyone's talking about what's happening. And when you first told me that, I, I kind of wanted to give her like benefit of the doubt. Of course. Because I was thinking, oh, like, no, it seems like she really, really cares. Like, I want to root for this woman. I know she's on the right. She's not who I would typically align myself with politically. 
but I want to hear her out until, until you told me and shared with me her very, very damning past. So let's get into that. Yes. So there's, there's a variety of issues with her past, one of which is being an early endorser of George Santos and that whole... <laughs> that's a whole other that's thing. That's a whole other thing irrelevant to this. But the thing that we really want to focus on here is her endorsement of Carl Palladino. So Carl ba- Palladino was endorsed by Stefanik in 2022 for New York's 23rd Congressional District. Palladino made comments on a radio show in 2021 praising Adolf Hitler. Oh. Saying he was, quote unquote, the kind of leader we need today. Stefanik condemned Palladino's remarks, but did not withdraw her endorsement. After Palladino called for the execution of Attorney General Merrick Garland, former Republican Congresswoman Mia Love called upon Stefanik to rescind her endorsement of Palladino. Stefanik actively campaigned for Palladino, hosting a tele-rally for him the night before the primary. Palladino lost the primary to Langworthy. It's just like (sighs) nothing is in her favor when you hear that, because that like very clearly shows her character and what she actually values. Yes, which really I think is like, that's the tricky bit. This clip shows her as someone that polices anti-Semitism. But her record is to endorse people that are openly anti-Semitic, that support the ideas or the leadership of Adolf Hitler. Yeah, and then you could even say, oh, maybe she didn't know. But when she did know, when it was brought to her attention, she still supported him. She did not withdraw her support. And that, that is somehow worse. Yeah. Because it means that you acknowledge and you double down. Yeah, because I, I again, want to give her benefit of the doubt. Everyone makes mistakes. It's really hard to know the history and context of everyone in the political atmosphere, especially if you're endorsing them. Well, you kind of should have done your homework, but not everyone does. But then to know and to just continue your little support. Oh, it's 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 so much more than embarrassing. It's just bad. Like, do you really think that people such as ourselves on the internet are not going to do some digging and find that out about you? Because when we actually look through some of the TikTok comments just before this episode, a lot of people are just confused. And okay, that is where I am. Like, I know the facts now, but I'm also still kind of confused because this is (laughs) such a shit show. None of it makes any sense. And that's why I feel like God, it's just such a big distraction from what is actually going on in Israel and Palestine. And like, that's also really, really sad to me. It's like our nation is now over here arguing about some college presidents and some things that weren't or were not said when in reality, like people are dying. Yeah, right? it's, it's like, very distracting from the root of what all of this started in, which is the 2023 Israel-Hamas war. And somehow we are gossiping about college presidents. And this is really also to say, I, I, my personal opinion is that those college presidents screwed up big time in terms of their answer. But with the context of everything else, it's important to understand that there is a lot of motivation for this to be political theater, to get a soundbite, 
to get you to react the way that people are reacting online. There are so many people that are calling for the resignation of all three, only one of which has actually resigned. The other two, it looked like um, it looked like the Harvard president was in a bit of jeopardy, but will not be resigning. And that kind of came out today. And so I think what's important is to bring in this last piece of evidence. Yes, because if you're out there wondering, like I still am, what exactly was anti-Semitic about students submitting a pro-Palestine letter? Like truly, what was anti-Semitic about that action? And on the other two campuses, UPenn and MIT, which they're getting less coverage, so it's a little bit harder to find information on them. Yeah. I assume it just has to do with pro-Palestine protesting because that seems to be what this entire conversation is about. I really am asking the question and urge you all to ask yourself the same. What is anti-Semitic about being pro-Palestinian in this specific war, in this specific 2023 context? Yes. Like, it it is a genuine question. And when I looked it up, kind of the only clear-cut answer I could find was referring to the chant or the rallying cry cry that if you've been to a protest, you might have heard, which is, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. And so I was really curious, looking into the history of that chant, because it just, it didn't seem like it was invented in 2023 for this conflict. And it absolutely was not. So I'm going to be referring to an article that was released by the AP called From the River to the Sea, Why These Six Words Spark Fury and Passion Over the Israel-Hamas War. And I'll have this linked below in case anyone wants to go read it. But I just wanted to give like some general context of what this slogan literally means. The Jordan River is a winding 200 plus mile run on the eastern flank of Israel and the occupied West Bank. The sea is the glittering Mediterranean to its west. So geographically, that's the river and the sea that's being talked about. Now, the phrase about the space in between from the river to the sea has become a battle cry with new power to royal Jews and pro-Palestine activists in the aftermath of the Hamas deadly rampage across southern Israel on October 7th. So that's our context for this current use. Now, if you go back into the history of this, it appears that this certain phrase has been used several times. But I wanted to find like the actual opinion from both like Israeli people and Palestinian people, because we can sit here from an American point of view and talk about this all day. But I don't know anything. We don't have the context. We don't have the context. We don't have this So let's offer some. And again, this is published by the AP. So within this article under the subheading, What Palestinian Activists Say, we have a quote that follows. From the river to the sea is an aspirational call for freedom, human rights, and peaceful coexistence, not death, destruction, or hate. Now that is how I also interpreted this call. Me as well. And I think, again, if any of you have been in these protests or at least seen them on social media, I think it's fair to say that that's the general vibe, right? I, I, 
I personally have not seen an instance of anti-Semitism through the use of this chant within pro-Palestinian protests. And if we bring it back to what was actually happening on these campuses, I I can't say guarantee because I wasn't there, but like I with 99% certainty can say that this is how that phrase was also being used. Yes. I mean, we need to keep in mind that the people that are joining this protest, this is the first time that people in our generation have been politically outspoken about Israel and Palestine. A lot of generations have gone through this, and right now it's our generation going through this. And what I was also finding online is that the interpretation of that phrase really hinges on the word free. Right. And I do want to give just the other other perspective yes. and interpretation of this, because I don't think it would be fair not to. So under the same article, the subheading, what Jews say they hear, reads as follows. Have no doubt that Hamas is cheering those from the river to the sea chants because the Palestine between the river to the sea leaves not a single inch for Israel. So there is a completely different interpretation. So you're right. The word free definitely seems to be what this all comes down to and where Miss Stefanik might have been getting at hints of anti-Semitism. Yes. So it is hinging on that one single word, whether or not that rallying cry is or is not anti-Semitic. And the other issue with that too is it doesn't sound like that discussion is anything but reiterating each side's existing beliefs. So there is no common ground or resolution about what that chant means to people. Because if someone that is pro-Palestinian says that it is for human rights within that space, and someone that's pro-Israeli says, no, it is for the destruction of Israel, then they're both living within their own truths and neither of them sees themselves as wrong. But that's the, the issue with what we're dealing with today is that there are multiple realities to this specific situation and that there are multiple interpretations of single words that are starting entire congressional hearings. And I, I think that's what really faults this specific hearing is there was no room for nuance. Oh, can you imagine? There was no room for interpretation for these presidents to breathe. Like, yes, their responses, which you'll hear in the beginning of this episode, were horrible. They They fumbled it. They they fumbled it so bad. But when you really go back and listen to how Elise Stefanik was badgering them, she truly left them no room for nuance. And so when they responded that context matters, when I first heard that, I was like, oh my God, are you kidding? Of course it doesn't. But then when we go back to the letter, when we go back to the slogan and say, that is what Stefanik is saying is calling for the genocide of Jews, there is nuance. Yes. So how the hell could they respond yes or no to that question? She purposefully put all three of those presidents in a horrible position because she already had an agenda going into it. And the real, like, the goal, the objective 
because we got to power through these last little bits. So I'm going to give a little sneak preview before hiding this again, because the goal and objective is to oust these presidents from these universities. I mean, if we go through them all, Harvard and MIT's presidents are both women that started this year. The Harvard president started right after the affirmative action ruling. That's a whole other can of worms, and we're not talking about it here. But go look into it. It's a messy situation for that president. She's also the first woman and the first black president of Harvard. So, like, even more layers are being added. And the U Penn president, too, only started in 2022. So, just keep all of that in mind in terms of who is being asked to go in front of Congress. Now, we're going to talk about the elephant in the room. Because this is actually a part of history that I don't think is talked about that much because it is an ugly part of history. But um, in my, so I've done research on the German American Bund, which was a Nazi group that predominantly occupied New York before World War II. That's a whole other thing. But part of what I was finding in that research is where in the United States was there pro-Nazi sentiment before World War II. And that's when I first learned about Harvard having ties to the Nazis leading up to World War II. And you can look up this a bit more, but there was a president that was in charge of the university from 1909 to 1933 who was an outspoken anti-Semite, and was upset that the number of Jewish students admitted to the school was increasing. And at the time, it was around 25% of the student body admitted were Jewish, and this president wanted it to go down to 15. Now, the admissions for Harvard was unwilling to make an explicitly discriminatory policy against Jewish people. However, they were willing to take things like culture fit and legacy as ways to have a preference for non-Jewish students. And conveniently, the Jewish population at Harvard hit that 15% mark that that president really wanted to hit. And it stayed that way for decades thereafter. So just like... I'm not saying that like Harvard equals Nazi. I'm just saying that like, a, and you can look into this as well. There are a lot of places in the United States up leading up until World War II, especially in elite college campuses that preached anti-Semitism. There were a lot, like it just happened. It happened. It was the rise of fascism and it hit parts of elitist thinking on college campuses. That's the elephant in the room here. Now, let's really take it back to like, okay, we have this congressional hearing, we have the viral clip, given that history with Harvard, given that history with elite institutions in the United States, elite colleges in the United States, what is the role of a new president to dismantle that history, to blaze a new path that is anything but Harvard's anti-Semitic history? And... Right now, I mean, I remember in that clip that we saw at the beginning, 
the line that struck me was a scapegoat is not going to fix this. If there is deep embedded anti-Semitism and you're inferring that based off of college presidents fumbling with a very aggressive, like badgering kind of line of questioning, and you think that firing them is going to get rid of the anti-Semitism, you got it all wrong. That's not how this works. But you know what it does do? It does get the first black and the first female president out of Harvard. Yes. And I can guarantee you, if she was forced to resign or if she did step down, they would have brought in a white male. Like, it's yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to go there because, like, I, I personally am very, very against every single Ivy in this country. <laughs> I, I want them all dismantled. They are incredibly problematic. That can be for another episode. Yes. But in this context, it is so convenient that this is the one time that they chose to address these universities for this problem. Like you said, they do have an anti-Semitic history. Yes. If, if Stefanik or whoever genuinely cared and like genuinely wanted to dismantle it, they would have done this decades ago. And they would have done it with a white male. But no, they don't want to poke the beast. They don't want to provoke it because Harvard needs to be kept sacred. So what is really likely is that the current president of Harvard is politically quite different than a lot of big donors to Harvard and Harvard alumni. And so to add some context to this, the president of UPenn was already under fire before this hearing even happened, was already under fire before October 7th. And due to like similar uh, do, issues, right? Like there was related to yes. pro-Palestine. Yes. Support. And again, it's like. And a lot of wealthy alumni promised to not donate any money or to withdraw their donations to the university unless this president resigned or unless there was an apology issue, some sort of quid pro quo. So I think the added information of Harvard's anti-Semitic past and the fact that all three university presidents that were called in this hearing are women and are fairly new presidents kind of brings me to believe that Representative Elise Stefanik may not be as passionate for dismantling anti-Semitism as she's leading everyone to think. Agreed. And that's a perfect way to bring it back to this clip, the clip in general. If we watch it now with these, these new eyes, you see a member of the House of Representatives that is relatively unknown at that point hitting a line of questioning that is incredibly emotionally charged to address pro-Palestinian protests on college campuses with the ultimate objective, and, and objective meaning like she has now said, one down, two to go when the University of Pennsylvania president resigned. The objective is to oust these presidents. Now, I don't want to say that I am here to defend what they said or like that is not the thing. It's 
once we get that context of that's what this person in the House of Representatives is trying to do in that moment, is get them with a got you, gotcha kind of question, get a good soundbite, and get people to start chanting for them to resign. If that's the goal, then they nailed it. And they did. And they did. And so, like, when I rewatch that clip now, all I see is the how quick we are to draw a strong ultimate conclusion, an all-encompassing conclusion, one in which the context is irrelevant because the words are apprehensible and vile. But when you take a step back, you realize that everyone in that video is being an asshole. No one is worth celebrating there. And that, to be honest, it's clips like that and baiting interactions like that that really hurt discourse in this country. Because now I've spent hours of my life researching why this thing even happened. And I would rather not spend hours of my time trying to clarify context for emotionally charged clips. I would even go as far as saying that it's a blatant distraction from what is like actually going on in Israel and Palestine. Like, I want to make it so clear that that is where people's focus should be. And when viral content like this, like random bullshit that's happening in our country, when we get caught up in that, we, we lose track of what is actually important. I'm not saying that what is happening on college campuses and students feeling protected and safe and students being able to speak their own mind isn't important. It is. But it's so much bigger than that. And that's what makes me so sad about this whole clip is just how stupid it is. It feels it's, it's one of those things, too, where, like, let's think about how many connections away this clip is from what this clip is even talking about, right? This clip is from a House committee hearing in D.C. about protests on college campuses in the United States about a decades-long conflict in the Middle East that is ongoing and changing every day. So we are like four relationships away from anything that's tangible, where human lives are at stake, where things matter. And instead we're caught up in villainizing people for political gain. And that's kind of the, the nugget there is for political gain. Because if, if there was true and genuine anti-Semitism and it was being called out, then that would be very important. Yes. Like it would and be. That's my take. Yes. Anti-Semitism it, is very not cool. It is I am horrible. Bad. I am very anti-anti-Semitism. That needs to be abundantly clear because apparently we need a lot of clarity with this. Anti-Semitism is bad. Islamophobia is bad. Period. Sorry. That's it. 
No, you're good. I, I think that it's great to make that distinction because I agree with everything you just said. But when people are kind of grasping at straws for this and distracting from what actually matters, then I get pissed. Right. And this I, and then you're caught in it, too. And now I'm caught in it. And now I'm on a podcast talking about it. And now you're listening to a podcast talking about it. Yeah. So I think the, the if you have anything to take away from this episode, it is no matter your, your political view, get the context of whatever you're looking at, watching, reading that has anything to do with political candidates that represent you. Because if you don't, it gets into a very, very dangerous territory of you being incredibly misinformed and that can lead to activism that is harmful that can lead to hate speech that can lead to so many other horrible actions and so being informed with the truth and nothing but the truth is your only option and unfortunately in the american political climate it is so difficult to find that and i have noticed with kind of age groups all across the board, that media literacy, news literacy is very low. There is so much clickbait and it is so, so easy to fall for. So if there is one thing, if you feel so helpless in this conflict, you don't know what to do. The one thing that you can absolutely do is find sources that you can trust. We will link many below because this is something that both Brendan and I are very passionate about. Misinformation is incredibly dangerous. And like you said, this conflict is ongoing. We're not talking about something that happened X amount of years ago. This is right now. Yes. So, And we just spent a week talking about college presidents yeah, and like rooting it in this conflict. More or less, get your priorities straight. Get your sources straight so that you can help in the best way that you can. Because not everyone can get out there and protest. You might live in a rural town that doesn't protest at all. You might not have the money to give and support. You don't know where to support. We will link resources, but the best thing you can do is be incredibly informed and have the highest media literacy you can possibly have. Yeah, we're, we're approaching an election year. Media literacy is going to be very important. And I would also say another thing, like okay, yes. it is, like you said, we are approaching election year. It is no accident that stuff like this is happening and it's just going to keep ramping up. Okay. Yes. The distractions are coming. The crazy headlines are coming. Stay strong, people. Get your sources. Listen to NPR. Good night. <laughs> Hi there. I am Brendan Keene. I graduated from the University of Washington from the information science department, the iSchool. In that department, this is where a lot of the misinformation research has started in this country and is ongoing. And so one of my favorite groups within the University of Washington is the Center for an Informed Public. This group is doing a lot of hard work to make sure that online discourse is rooted in fact, it is rooted in truth, and that you can trust what you are hearing. I also want to give a big shout out to a website called Ground News. Ground News is a news aggregation service. What does that mean? It takes a story and it finds all the articles related to that specific story. It breaks down where the articles come from. It breaks down the differences between those articles. It's a great, great place to add some context 
to these events, to these news items. I would have not, I wouldn't have been able to research any of this without ground news. I even had to upgrade to a premium subscription because I lost my student account because I graduated. I also want to give a shout out to WBUR Boston and PR. They did a lot of really good coverage on this specific event. They even did follow up with the Harvard Crimson, which is the student newspaper where the Harvard president addressed this specific hearing. We will be linking all of these down below. Um, and it's enough sources where I would also like this to be on our website, roughdraftmedia.com. I will put the URL right here where you can find all of those resources. Yeah, I know. That's, that's great. I think that is the best thing that we can leave with all of you out there. Sometimes I feel really helpless and also hopeless when such horrible events are happening in the world and I want to help in the best way I can, but maybe I'm not like financially ready or I don't even know how to, or I don't know where to start. I don't know who to support. It's, it's really, really difficult. And so, like I said, if this is the one thing you do, I urge you to do it. The one thing I want all of you to bring home with you from this episode is that media literacy and the ability to sift through your sources and know where your news comes from can be learned. This isn't something that you have to go to college to learn. In fact, a lot of people who go to college are not informed. Right? And they're bad at looking through sources. Yeah. Like, no one's exempt from misinformation. Right. Like, I want anyone who's listened to this podcast or any podcast we've ever made to feel empowered in their own right to be media literate. This is something that you can work on. And specifically, as our media changes and our news evolves, right? Now news is like primarily on social media. Now people have to learn how to digest it in that way. The media literacy changes with it. Beautiful. Wonderful. All right. I think that that's it from us. That's it. I, you know what, if you've seen the clip, go watch it again, see what you feel, and then never watch it again after that. And take a walk outside. Touch some grass, as always. Say hi to a friend. Say hi to a friend. We will see you next week for another installment of the Can I Tell You Something podcast. But until then, bye. Bye.